A warning before this episode. Today's film depicts a sexual assault, which is discussed in the review. As much as Ben and John have told me not to, and just as often as I have reminded them of the same, and as much as it kills me to admit it, I do read the comments from time to time. That's because it's hard not to be curious about how my work is being perceived, especially when that work is a 40-hour week of editing dick jokes into Star Trek podcasts and watching two three-hour war movies, 90 minutes of which include Brad Pitt three-point lit sidebutt. I should be satisfied enough with that. It's a good life and I'm happy to have it, but it's not good enough. I also want to see how it's going and if it's working. And if it matters to people, that's being greedy. Doing this should teach me a lesson, but it never does, or at least that lesson never sticks. Imagine being a film director, you know, an actual artist where there are actual stakes. You've worked for months with thousands of people through storms and reshoots and rewrites and so forth to get the butt lighting just right. It has to be so tantalizing to read the comments. How do you not do that? When the reviews started pouring in about Troy the first time around, I've got to believe that Wolfgang Peterson was not affected by them. He's an actual artist, unlike me. But like me, I'll assume he also has a semi-strict don't-read-the-comments policy and a group of friends to remind him of the same. They'd say, Wolfgang, babe, your schnitzel is going to get cold if you don't stop reading that issue of Das Premier magazine. And he would. Schnitzel is good. I never saw Troy when it was in the theater, but I sure did hear about it. What I heard deterred me, and I never saw the film until now. I think that was a good thing, because the studio spent a million dollars and added 30 minutes to make Troy, colon, director's cut. And ordinarily, long run times are a thing we complain about on this show, but it turns out you can do a lot of positive things with 30 minutes and a million dollars for a baby mannequin budget. Whether or not the criticism Peterson faced after the premiere of the original cut of the film inspired his inclination towards revisionism, we may never know. And if it is true, I'm sure he'd never admit it, because you never want to give a critic that kind of power. But what seems inarguable is that the film is better now than it was before. And I'm envious because Wolfgang Peterson got a redo. All it took was a million bucks, 30 extra minutes, and a truckload of baby mannequins. But there is no director's cut of a life. This is it. There are no reshoots and there is no more budget. The reviews keep coming in. But let's just all agree to try our hardest not to read them, if we can. Everything is more beautiful because we're doomed. On today's friendly fire, Troy, director's cut. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast where we sacrifice a goat and a pig before every recording session just to make sure our bases are covered. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Have I done that before? Saying it out loud made me feel like 
weird glitch in the matrix feeling like I, I've said almost exactly that. It's not as scandalous as, as me choosing camels for the second time <laughs> in our run as a as a rating system. That was awful. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't know if you'll ever recover. Oh wow. You know what? I might even use camels for this episode. Wow. But here's the thing about the rating system. Uh, they're different camels, so we can't compare the movies, still. Any movie with Peter O'Toole has a pretty high <laughs> chance of having camels being the rating system. That's it, exactly. There's Peter yeah. O'Toole in this movie, and there are zero camels, so I don't know how, how Adam's going to do true. it. true. Did you read the tea that uh, Diane Kruger spilled about working with him? Yeah. So, like... Everyone, I mean, who wouldn't be jazzed to work with Peter O'Toole at any point in his career, especially latter-day Peter O'Toole? Uh, I'll tell you who, Diane Kruger, who said he was especially mean and drunk all the time. Wow, mean and drunk <laughs> still, even at that age. Yeah, that makes me sad. It kind of explains the uh, the giant pools under his eyes at all times in this film. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the th one of the things about being uh, mean and drunk for most of your life is that you don't <laughs> you don't just get over it at the end. You know, it's not a thing that you're like you grow out of. The thing about being mean and drunk and powerful is that there's that weird power dynamic of people on the set going, "Oh man, it was so awesome. Peter O'Toole was just so mean to me." Right. <laughs> it's like going to a Don Rickles show yeah. and having him drag you yeah. for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's big fun. Um, I had never seen the director's cut of this movie. I think I saw. I think I saw it once, the theatrical release in the theaters, and then hadn't seen it since. And I was kind of bracing myself for a C minus movie, and I I think the director's cut is pretty good. It's a lot more violent. Yeah, the ketchup budget was way <laughs> higher was. than the theatrical release would have would have led you to believe. But then the sack of Troy was all of a sudden uh, it it like went up a notch in terms of just like uh, wanton violence. Like the, the camera like is chasing Achilles around, but then there was not a single rape that it didn't linger on. Like, oh, wow, there's Seriously. a rape happening over there. Let's linger on that for a second. No baby is on screen that doesn't get thrown into a fiery building. How many times have you seen a baby thrown? I doubled it easily watching this movie. There's really no going back after the first baby gets thrown. You might as well throw the next two or three after sure. because <laughs> what's the difference? Well, I don't know. I think like the cumulative effect of multiple babies getting thrown off a wall, I think it keeps doubling down. I think the first one, you're like, whoa, that guy was mean. But then the third one, you're like, all these guys are mean. Mean and drunk. Weren't you shocked by it from a movie that for more than two and a half hours was like, you know, Brad Pitt has the chance to like assault Briseis in a awful way. And instead they fall in love with each other. So I feel like for me, I, w I was lulled into this sense of, well, the opportunity for violence is going to be. Uh, unsurprising, and maybe that time has passed. We're going to see regular city sacking as the climax of this film. I was totally unprepared for what we got at the end. It's so interesting because I kind of 
remember this movie being about Brad Pitt being like, like a kind of tragic hero. And he's very, his, his motivations are very unsympathetic in this film. I, I, th- I feel like the Greeks just look like monsters and they're, they're sort of positioned as the protagonists. Like you don't really feel like Hector is the hero of the movie or, or Paris is the f- hero of the movie. Like the movie is, is pretty like even handed with, with showing both sides, but the, the Greeks feel like the kind of the home team for, for whatever reason. The Greeks are our protagonists. They're our heroes, but we don't care about them. We really don't care if they win. Uh, we don't care about Troy and we don't care if they lose. Nobody is like, get Agamemnon that big victory. No, right? <laughs> Agamemnon's hateful. And yet, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Support Orlando Bloom? Like he's kind of the worst. <laughs> You'd say he was yeah. the worst, except Brad Pitt is really Achilles is like immortality. Take it. It's yours. This is the weird movie. Where yeah. Sean Bean is the guy you like the most. <laughs> right. Totally. Where have totally. you ever seen a movie where Sean Bean was the guy that you were the most, you know, like you felt the most sympathetic toward? Very rare. I feel like if you tell me that, like, okay, you're going to watch a Swords and Sandals epic where the seven characters at the top of the call sheet are all pretty unlikable yeah and you're not going to really want either side to win are you going to enjoy watching this movie i'd be like no i i doubt it <laughs> you know <laughs> like how did how is this like the story that the greeks told each other like you know like this is like the founding epic of of greek mythology in a lot of ways well, and and western it's western history it doesn't it's not and it's not very flattering here's the thing about the iliad the gods are actively engaged in not just the outcome, but the gods, the fucking meddling pantheon of gods are completely invested in the day-to-day in-and-out battle. Like each one of these main characters has a god who's not only rooting for them, but intervening in battles. Like when Paris goes up against Menelaus, you know, and Menelaus defeats him in battle. Yeah. Um, it's not Hector that comes in and like saves him. It's some God steps down out of the clouds and grabs him and takes him away. So when you read the Iliad, it, it, it's not only that you have an unsympathetic Greeks versus an unsympathetic Trojans, but you also have like these kind of shitty, like backstabbing, um, you know, the Greek gods are like all kind of embarrassing in terms of precious. Yeah. They're just like, Oh, well your guy, you know, your guy uh, is going to slip on a banana peel in this fight. How do you like that? And you know, the uh, and <laughs> Zeus is like holding one, you know, holding like Ares back and saying like, I forbid you from doing anything. And Ares is throwing popcorn this movie is sort of it is to the iliad what the jefferson bible is to the actual bible like it it takes all the supernatural stuff out and just tells the stories it's the deist bible the story with the gods in it doesn't make you love anyone anymore 
uh, right. all it does is it is make you feel like uh, the gods are the worst. And so you take them out and then here it's just like, well, the humans didn't become more human somehow. Doesn't the film do a good job of, of supporting that argument, though? Like the gods are the worst in this movie and the people who believe in them are dumb. And believing in them is what cost Troy Troy. Well, but that's the thing. Like the all the the blasphemy that Achilles like sort of layers on everything that he all of his like uh, sedition in the real Iliad, the gods are like standing on a cloud watching him do it. And the you know, all that blasphemy has real world consequences. And here it just sort of feels like like in every war movie, there's one guy that curses God. Apollo's like, should I curse him with a incredible butt? <laughs> Let's see what he does with that. <laughs> Let's see how far you get, Achilles. When we were watching this movie, Adam texted us and said, there's already more boobs in this movie than in every other Friendly Fire movie in three years. It's a very nude movie. It's, it is very nude. It's a, I mean, it's a movie set in the time before pants, so it's going to be inherently somewhat more nude than your average movie. The, uh, the director's cut is, I guess, a lot hornier than the original cut. Like, it's, it's got more nudity and more, like, they added sex scenes back into the movie in the director's yeah. cut. Woo! David Benioff is the screenwriter for this movie, and he also did Game of Thrones, right? So that that squares out. Like, <laughs> like that's a very horny show. There's a very horny movie in the director's cut. Benioff also said that, like, to your point, John, like, whenever there was a choice making this movie or writing this movie between uh, sticking to the script that is the Iliad and making what he thought to be a better movie, they always chose better movie. And in David Benioff's mouth, you have to read that as hornier movie. Right, exactly. <laughs> hey, I found a, a very horny pedant on the internet. Oh, those are those are fun. Let's hear. When Briseis asks Achilles if she is still his captive, her bikini tan line is very visible. Mm. <laughs> oh. There are a lot of goofs on the IMDb <laughs> goof section, but that was the horniest one I found, and it really made me laugh. The weirdest thing about that pedant is that it was TurkFan69. <laughs> I didn't know he was a horny pedant. Yeah. Well, TurkFan69 tuned into this movie because it takes place where Turkey is today. Mm. Of course. It is TurkFan69. He's a big fan. There are all these scenes where, like, you know, two guys will meet up on the battlefield and one's a Trojan and the other's a Greek and they'll be like, hey, what's your fucking deal, buddy? Right. Like, do, would they have shared a common language? Well, this is before the Turks even were in this area. This would this would all have been sort of larger, you know, the larger sort of Anatolic sphere or whatever. Um there were there would have been a lot of languages, but there would have been, you know, I think a common constellation of culture in the whole Aegean. So maybe like ancient Greek served as a lingua franca, but there were other languages spoken also. I, the Trojan, th this would have been like the Hittites, but this is all stuff that's like pre-biblical era. 
it would be a Hellenistic culture. So yes, Greek throughout, Greekish, Greek, <laughs> Greek adjacent, as my realtor would put it. <laughs> History remembers kings. Not soldiers. Brian Cox has had such an interesting career, and I thought he was great as Agamemnon. Agamemnon. (laughs) But didn't he look youthful in this movie? I thought it was so strange. He looks 20 years younger than he was in the last film he was in before this. Yeah. It's amazing what a helmet can do. Sure is. It made me feel less bad about playing Agamemnon in the school play when I was in middle school. Mm. I played Agamemnon, too. No kidding. Wow. I played Paris. (laughs) Did you? You look like him. No. <laughs> we did uh, We did the Oristia in college uh, at Gonzaga, and I gave a big soliloquy about the snows of Mount Ida and about having lost so many men, both on the both at Troy and then on the voyage home, the long, long, awful voyage home. I think the play I was in was called Regarding Electra. Uh huh. I don't remember too much about it. It had like a Greek chorus and I don't think I I don't think I was good in the play. I was amazing as Agamemnon. You give me Cox vibes though, you know. <laughs> I feel like you guys would have approached the character from a similar from a similar standpoint whereas I, a spindly 12-year-old, did not have gravitas at the time. Yeah, I I, I still don't. They put me all in that they put me in this wonderful sort of Greek armor i had one of those short greek swords and i came in and i knelt and d- delivered my my speech looking directly at the audience you're a crook captain hook judge won't you throw the book at the pie i still think about it in fact <laughs> cool <laughs> <laughs> cool i think brian cox is on my uh, mount gravitas i think you could do a lot worse than centering a film around an actor like him. But I think I disagree with you guys about the relative rootfulness of all of these characters. I think rather than finding them unrootforable, I think I found them equally rootable, which I want to be clear is like a positive <laughs> versus what I'm going to interpret as a as a negative quality you guys were describing. I think everyone's so beautiful and I think they're capably acting what I think is uh not that great of a script or a story. I don't think the adaptation is is good for this purpose. Well, you know, Adam's not that far off. There was a there was a kind of a turning point in Iliad scholarship somewhere in the 19th century where some academic came out with a super hot take that the Iliad was dumb. It was a bad story (laughs) featuring bad people. Homer was a bad poet and the whole enterprise was just bad. And it, uh, it, it became kind of a, you know, it's like a sub vein. I don't think anybody in classical scholarship now is like the Iliad is amazing piece of song. It really rocked the academic world when the Iliad's Rotten Tomatoes score went down from 100%. But I think I think for so long, people have, have approached the Iliad as, you know, the same way they, I'm talking about from a university perspective, same way they do the Bible. Like, they're not really talking about it as anything. I want to be clear. The Iliad is a lot better than the Bible. I just wow. didn't think that the... 
the Iliad as as translated for this film specifically wasn't super tight. Wow. But you're but you're pro Iliad, you're saying. Of course. Who isn't pro Iliad? You'd be a you'd be a fool to be anti Iliad. I don't know. The thing about it as a as a thing to read is that it has uh, it has a lot of similarities to certain aspects of the Bible in the sense that when it starts to list people list people's names and where they're from and what mm. their family is and who begat whom who begat whom it it really there are there are long long passages where every single person and their backstory is is recounted and it's a you know you feel your eyelids start to droop. The 40th time. I mean, that's every old book, though, right? Like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is an awesome story about a submarine, but there's like entire chapters that just list types of fish they catch. (laughs) (laughs) And then Manta Ray begat Sting Ray. (laughs) Sting Ray begat Pygmy Ray. <laughs> uh, I am impressed that you had a third type of <laughs> ray in your, in your quiver. It felt made up, but it does, doesn't matter. I'm there for it. <laughs> this is a, a, a retelling of this story that takes great, great liberties. There's a part where I think it's a Achilles and Agamemnon, and Agamemnon is like pissed off that Achilles is there for the the glorification of the name Achilles like Agamemnon feels entitled to all of the historical notoriety for this for this war rarely do you get to see the great men of history debating the great men of history theory haven't you ever had a boss that took credit for your work though that's what that moment felt like to me it felt like a very modern idea like what if we could get a scene going where these two names that we all know from you know middle school greek mythology lessons uh discuss their relative importance to the historical record and i think that 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 accurately um depicts the way people would think in an age of heroes you know like all of all of their history would have been um, in the form of song, celebrating a battle, celebrating a great victory. You know, there wasn't a written language at the time or there wouldn't have been, you know, there wasn't literacy really. Um, and so to get your name into the song, I think that they never say that specifically in, or the, they don't use that language, but it's like, there aren't history books, but there are history songs. And if they're singing the song of Achilles or the song of Agamemnon, that would have meant something to them. Are the songs written and performed much later? Like they, those aren't the songs at the, at the funeral pyres that they're singing, right? That's just wailing. That's just, well, God, I don't know. Don't, don't get me started. Uh, I don't want to get, I don't want to get emails from Turk fan 69 about the (laughs) music of the near East, but, uh, but fair enough. You know, I think they would have, I think that the story of the battle would have uh, gone out probably ha- probably sung. You know, that would have been the news that you got. Um, it would have come in the form of a song or, or quickly have been turned into a song. You'd be a, a terrible person for this time because you'd be adding your own embellishments and and yeah. questioning <laughs> the writing of a certain lyric. It'd yeah. be great. I'd be beatboxing, you know. 
<laughs> I mean, that was the that was the problem with Walt Whitman, right? He never settled on a version of Leaves of Grass. He just kept singing it, just kept kept writing it throughout his whole life. And it's like, just settle down. I mean, the same has been said of Wolfgang Peterson releasing <laughs> the director's cut of his masterpiece, Troy. Yeah. Three years la- after the original. Adam, did you see this in theaters? No, and I was just going to say... I'm glad I saw the director's cut. I have no need for any other. I wonder how much worse the original was. I read about it, and the score was a lot different, and the sacking of Troy was totally different. Uh, I think we got the ultimate version. I think we'd feel a lot differently had we been here to discuss the, the OG version. I wish I had a stronger recollection so I could make some more than just general comparisons. But I read... Uh, quote from Brad Pitt talking about how the movie, as they were shooting it, sort of felt like they were making something that was designed to be very commercially successful. And, you know, he was expressing regrets that they didn't make the best version of the movie that they thought it could be from an artistic standpoint, but the most marketable version of the movie. And I felt like the director's cut maybe was a an attempt to push the film back into being more of a a thing that Wolfgang Peterson could feel proud of from a creative standpoint because it doesn't feel very commercial to me I've seen Das Boat so many times and I thought I had a grasp for what Wolfgang Peterson's style was but I don't know about you but watching Troy it could have been one of 10 big directors directing this. I'm not sure if I have a grasp of of what makes a Wolfgang Peterson directed film a Wolfgang Peterson directed film by watching this. At some point that went away. Yeah, it's almost like that $185 million production budget thing like takes all of the style out of a movie. Like once you get to that scale, you can't like you cannot afford to weird people out. Constraints encourage creativity too in a way that that was absent here from what you're saying. Yeah, and and I think that like the studio gets like more and more risk averse. Yeah. I mean, this is a very beautiful movie, but it yeah, you're right. Like it it kind of feels like it's directed in the style of a Marvel film, which doesn't mean anything about how distinctive it is as a as a work of art. I saw this in the theaters. Uh, the day it came out, I was in Amsterdam and thankfully I didn't have anybody to hang out with. And I was like, I'll go to the movies from the very beginning of it because it didn't have all that Odysseus uh, story at the front. Like we Odysseus didn't really play a big role in the original cut. Like the the Sean Bean character, you kind of just, he was just incidental. Almost feels like they're setting up the sequel (laughs) of the Odyssey in this movie. (laughs) Right. Which would be also a very weird movie. Yeah. Like, I don't know how you take the supernatural out of the Odyssey. I don't think you could. Right. But I sat in the theater and just gradually just started to develop this fucking hate for this movie. And about an hour into it, I was just rage watching it. I, I didn't read the Iliad in college. I set it up for myself as some kind of stretch goal uh, in my life. When I was about 35, I was like, you know what? I'm going to read the Iliad. Like, I've, you know, some kind of dumb 
just thing that you do to make sense out of your life. Everyone's got to read on the road. <laughs> That's right. You know what I've never done? And so I. You know sa- what the OG on the road is? The Iliad. The Iliad. So I sat and I, you know, and I plowed through it and it's readable, but I, I wasn't hate watching it because it didn't conform to the Iliad. Like I didn't have any dog in that race. I hated it because everybody's hair was perfect. Like every person in this movie is beautiful, as beautiful as a person can be in this film. And this is at a, this is at a time when there would have been no sanitation. All these people were wiping their asses with their hands. Um, you know, they're like any wound you incur in one of these battles is the grossest wound of all time. You immediately get an infection and die of sepsis. Oh, yeah. Ajax is still being alive after sustaining the wounds that he has those scars for is nothing short of miraculous, right? Any pan over Achilles butt would reveal that it just looked like a pepperoni pizza. (laughs) (laughs) But instead, like all we see and they do this throughout the film, some makeup artist comes on screen and smudges some black charcoal across someone's forehead and then mists it with fake perspiration and we're meant to understand the horrors of war. It sounds like there's a certain kind of rule to casting where if you go to the lengths of casting like a Brendan Gleeson and all that is great about his face and Brian Cox and a handful of others in this film that look look reliably of their time in this time and then you also cast... Eric Bana and Orlando Bloom, like like there's something doesn't quite fit with how they mesh. Like I feel like all of the casting should have been either beautiful people or Brendan Gleasons, because the Brendan Gleasons make the Orlando Blooms stick out. The first time that Priam shows up on screen and his hair is just like it's so. 2004 I don't even know how to describe his hair he's the king of Troy he's gonna have the best hair he's gonna have the haircut that people look at and go man that is like a futuristic haircut think about you're the king of Troy (laughs) you can afford it think about his priest the guy that kept standing up in those meetings and saying like the signs are very good that fucking guy that guy right his hair I mean these these guys they they look like they look like old men who lived in Nepal that guy for had a while. The ancient aliens he interview did. hair version of the King of Troy. <laughs> he did. They look like yoga instructors. That's the meme that I want to see made from this episode of Friendly Fire. Someone <laughs> someone get that guy from King Priam's court and then superimpose him on that guy's face. <laughs> Back to the ships. Going into this, I, you know, I sat down, I turned on, uh, I sat down, I turned off the water in my bath because I wanted to be able to hear the, the soundtrack. I, I turned my phone sideways because I know you guys have told me, don't look at it in mm-hmm. portrait mode. You have to look at it in. Correct. <laughs> so I settled in and I was like, I am going to hate this. I'm going to fucking hate this. And I didn't this time. Um, and maybe it's because we've watched 150 war movies, but in the grand scope of of war movies like this one 
I think you're I think you're right, Adam, that it could have been directed by any big budget director. All the things that there are to hate about it. I actually kind of was like, I got into it. This is not a hateable movie. This did not engender that kind of strong feeling. No, that's the thing. And I don't know. I was I don't know why I hated it so much in 2004. The only white whale of hate that remains for you anymore is the child actor from Roseanne. Child actor from <laughs> Roseanne and also also uh, Ben's review of Sicario. Those are the two things that oh, I yeah. will always I'll go to my go to my grave hating. You can't do anything about either of them. <laughs> <laughs> when Peter O'Toole goes to Achilles after the death of Hector and has that scene where he kisses his hands and asks for a proper burial for his son. And there's that moment, there's the moment where he discovers Briseis is there. And I was not, this is as confused as, confused as I ever have been in a film. I was not sure if she would stay or go in that moment. If she was going to get up onto the chariot with Priam or stay with Achilles. She really seems to have fallen for Achilles, and the movie doesn't give us modern terminology to think about that with. It sort of crossed my mind that there may be a Stockholm Syndrome component to it, but it's like before that concept existed. Well, but she doesn't have a weak will, right? She's yeah. for, For Stockholm Syndrome to apply, the person, you know, is definitely like held captive against their will, and gradually they their sympathy turns to their captor. She fought him right up until the time that she was like, actually, I'm not going to fight you. You're too pretty for that. I'm going to see your butt. (laughs) And then I'm going to own your butt. And she does own his butt. She's the only thing that Achilles cares about in the whole film, except for his legend. Like the point of no return for Achilles is, is when he kills Hector even though Briseis tells him not to. Yeah. Like, that's that's it for her. Although it's not, because at the end, she begs Paris not to, not to kill Achilles, yeah. and Paris ignores her. I feel like the movie wants you to think that that's a moment of redemption for Paris, but I feel like Paris is irredeemable. Which one are we supposed to feel versus what we actually feel? I don't think that it redeems him, but I think... He understands what a fucking shit he's been at that point. Like, I love the line when Helen tells him he's younger than she's ever been. Yeah. That's like... Super diss. I feel like so, so well put. And like, she's saying it despite the fact that she loves him. But he's like, she's like, you know, basic. It's basically, I love you, but you're a fucking moron, Paris. But that's also a scene that makes me wonder why Helen of even likes him. Like, what is the what is the attraction? Is it just her her unattraction to Brendan Gleeson? <laughs> is is he just an easy way out? This is one of the ways in which the movie's deviation from the text it, it kind of garbles it, or not garbles it, but modernizes the story. But but that has consequences later on in the. In the poem, it doesn't start with this whole, like, Helen's cheating on uh, Menelaus with Paris and they escape across the sea together, tee-hee-hee. 
because <laughs> if that's truly the case, if, you know, in that moment in her bedchamber, when Paris is like, come away with me. And she's like, you're so dumb. Like that'll never work. And he's like, no, do it. Helen is smart enough, at least in the terms of this picture, in the language of this picture, to know that running away with Paris will a spark a global war and B result in all of them being dead. If she's ever heard a single epic poem, she knows that no one survives this. And at least in the terms of the movie, Helen's too smart to have chosen that path. Paris is, is callow, right? But, but Helen isn't in the poem. The poem starts in the middle of this story. We only learn about this competition between Paris and Menelaus for Helen. It like gradually kind of comes out in the course of the story. The war is already on and it's, you know, it's kind of alluded to and then more and more illusion. And pretty soon it's like, oh, wait a minute, what's going on here? And doesn't the Iliad end with the body of Hector being permitted to go back to Troy? Isn't that the... That's the end, but the story of the sack of Troy and all that is like, I guess it's also alluded to throughout the story. It's, you know, that's kind of what makes it a great work of art is that the that it plays with time. Was I the only host that didn't read the Iliad before this episode? <laughs> I really feel like I fucked up. You're not, you're not, so, you, you don't need to read. I'm, and I'm saying this to our audience too. You do not need to read the Iliad. Also, uh, you do not need uh, to read the Dubliners. You don't need to read Ulysses. You don't need to read the Jefferson Bible. 50,000 Greeks didn't cross the sea to watch your brother fight. I had read a translation of of the Iliad in high school, I think, but I actually recently, maybe 10 years ago, read this. I guess, I think I just got like a galley and it was only parts of it, but it, it's a book called War Music by a modern English poet named Christopher Logue. And it's written in like a very like approachable contemporary kind of language that is like extremely poetic, like really beautiful. And, and I, I tore through it. It's, it's, the only example I can think of of a poem that's that long that I've really like enjoyed a lot. Right. So uh, if if you if you do want to read the Iliad, uh, maybe start there. All of this is a product of uh, when entering college, um, choosing to try and approximate a classical education rather than go to college in order to get a job. And <laughs> in the end, it's a uh, you know I don't recommend it to anyone who isn't called to it. You're in a crushing amount of debt either way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But but having a classical education does not get you a, uh, a coding job out of school. You're not going to pay those debts off, in other words. It might eventually get you a war movie podcast, yeah. but that's not actually a good thing <laughs> as such. We're in debt in a much different way. I don't understand why Ben didn't translate it into a dead poet society job. He already has the sweaters. Yeah, you should be the young teacher at Andover. I would love inspiring young minds. I know you would. You, you know, walking across the quad, swinging your tennis racket absently while you, while you think the, think the, the deep thoughts. Oh, all the embroidered patches on my jackets. Yeah, and all the, all the students would be like, oh. Really make up for all of that empty space on your letterman's jacket in high oh! school. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. This will surprise no one, but I have never attended a school that had a football team. 
but you did have an embroidery team, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's how I got in the, uh, in the yearbook, you know, captain of the embroidery <laughs> team. <laughs> hey team, I'm back from the sewing shop. <laughs> it feels like another thing that is modernized in this movie is like the, the structure and uh, disposition of the armies. Like I think, the weapons and kinds of armor they use are super ahistorical in this film. Like they're, they're from like hundreds and hundreds of years. Really? More recently than this film is set. You know what I really liked was the shield with the hole cut out of it. So you can use your spear, like you yeah. can rest your spear on the spear holder. Like it's a, like it's right. a spoon rest next to uh, an oven. But like crucially, when this film takes place, nobody had ever thought of that as an idea. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it until seeing this movie. But I liked that, like, the Myrmidons are, like, really easy to understand as, like, the special forces yeah. of the Greek Empire. All black. And, like, that's fun. In my, like, I don't know if it has anything to do with what the historical Myrmidons were about, but I liked it. Yeah, I think I think part of the problem is that the Greeks... By the time, like, what we think of as classical Greece uh, was, like, worshipping the Iliad and the writings of Homer, the the poem was composed in their distant, distant past, hundreds of years prior. But the poem right. was written about events that were hundreds of years prior to Homer. So when we look back at like what the Trojan wars were like, well, there's just, there's no documentation outside of this kind of epic poem. So it's all archeological record. Like if you can't dig it up and look at it, then, you know, there's no, we have no idea how they fought or what they wore or any of that stuff. In fact, Troy itself remained a complete mystery I mean, people knew generally where it was, but I think for many, many years, people thought that Troy was one place and then only in the last hundred years has has the archaeological consensus been that it's in another place. And it's never really been excavated or it has been partially excavated, but it's one of those situations where there was ancient Troy and then they built, then they built little Troy and then they built Troy three and then, you know, they started changing the name, the Troy branding kind of wore off. No, I mean like that, that whole part of the world is like that. Like I, I took a tour of Naples a few years ago and they're like, you know, like the Roman city was just like, Oh yeah, we're going to put up a stadium here and there's a bunch of houses from the Greek era. And so we're just going to like use those as structural elements of this stadium. So you can like, and then the stadium is no longer there, but you can like walk by an apartment building and see like where the seats in the stadium were in the wall. Like now we would be like horrified to, you know, you never tear down a, a Roman ruin to build an apartment complex, but <laughs> that was not a big deal back then. It's, uh, it's, well, the great thing about Rome and Athens and, and Istanbul, places like that, where in a, in a way it's great. But in a way, it's also just like incomprehensible to us who's, I mean, I'm living in a town that was founded in 1857 or whatever. Um, but these places where, you know, you just, you pull over to take a piss on a thing that's 2,500 years old and people are just throwing their cigarettes at it because it's right next to a 
subway stop or a 7-eleven yeah and it's like fuck <laughs> you guys like every single one of these stones is precious i mean what was it when they were building the subway in athens and they just kept like one after another every time they dug a hole it was like oh here it is <laughs> another amazing thing yeah human beings god so disgusting one thing that we get criticized for occasionally is like compressing the past yeah right um and uh this movie is like way more guilty of that than ever we will be uh i i have another goof guys i, I don't know if uh this movie deserves there's it. a precedent for this wow but uh i don't know ben i don't know if this is a good idea double goof do it <laughs> right, i well, support it you know if if we get a, ba- a bunch of bad ratings on apple podcasts or or whatever i will take all of the, the all heat right. for that guys okay Coins are placed on dead characters' eyes before their bodies are burnt. Ancient Greeks placed a coin in the corpse's mouth, not on the eyes. However, the Trojan War occurred before coined money was invented in the 7th century BC. So they wouldn't have had coins at all. Oh, wow. Smack. That's heavy. That's like 1,200 years of, of time compression to get that coin thing wrong. Also, that just doesn't work for film. If we were going to go coin to mouth, yeah, uh, yeah. CTM is, is what it's called. <laughs> you never go CTM. You don't know where those coins have been. That's not going to look good. Like, what are they going to do? Like, b- bodies on the on the pyre, you're like opening a lockjaw jaw in order to stick the coin in, and then you close it again? That's gross. No one wants to see that. Nasty. I, I love that that pedant, like, like it's a twist ending. Like, you don't, you don't even know how wrong this is. <laughs> a lot of burning bodies in this movie. Yeah. I turned to my wife while we were watching it, and I said, if I, uh, if I die before you, funeral pyre, please. Yes, yeah. funeral pyre. This movie used fire really interestingly. Like, that whole rolling fireball technology I thought was great. When they when they go to attack the the Myrmidons at night and all the arrows go into the sand and I'm thinking nice shooting assholes like what the hell is that gonna do all those fiery arrows are gonna go out and then they roll those those balls of of what what is that sticks or hay or something yeah like like probably oil soaked hay balls so amazing once those things roll through and and get get some steam under them. It's great. Yeah. That was not a technology of its day either, I imagine. Who knows, right? I mean, fire and war go hand in hand. I'd much rather see that than another in the 20 times we've seen a catapult happen. You know, like totally. show me something yeah. interesting and weird in war technology. And, and Troy gives you that. It's also just such an interesting thing to think of like before rockets and bullets you could like go watch a war, you know, you just stand a little bit back and the war can happen. It's like a spectator sport in this movie. Like when the, when the Trojans score a W at the end of a day, like it cuts to where Peter O'Toole and his friends are sitting and they're like applauding. I mean, well, after the invention of bullets, people, people went uh, on carriage rides out to watch the civil war park up on the hill and watch Gettysburg happen down down in the valley and and uh, uh, bring a picnic basket. Dear Mary, <laughs> we enjoyed egg salad sandwiches <laughs> as we watched the first battle of the Civil War. 
white bread has recently been inventive, and I find it quite agreeable. <laughs> I wonder, you know, that's an interesting thing, but surely, and I know you guys don't want me to call you Shirley, but there, uh, there must be, <laughs> in any situation where there's a, there's a big battle happening, there have got to be people watching from a neighboring hillside what was it in which they in which we serve or where yeah. they went out for a picnic and they were watching the battle of britain i wish you every once in a while um, any war movie would kind of zoom out and get a shot like a super wide shot where people have a picnic basket and are watching the carnage like uh, in a vietnam movie maybe some like french aristocratic colonizers sitting up on a hill with a table with a tablecloth you know in a way the people who go into the desert trailer to fly uh, uavs i'm sure they pack a lunch oh yeah for that kind of duty and they're fighting a war you bet they do that's a picnic war they've probably they've probably got ho-hos in their bag <laughs> oh yeah ho-hos and a and a apple juice it's a lot of sugar yeah <laughs> we've learned so much since the era of the ho-ho we have this is a really pretty movie. I know that we've talked about how, from a style standpoint, it's maybe a little lacking compared to some of Wolfgang Peterson's other work, but the, you know, epic swords and sandals movie, is it's almost like cheating for a, a cinematographer, but I think that uh, the cinematography in this is is really first rate. Roger Pratt's the cinematographer for Troy, and he also did a couple of Harry Potter films. And that really unlocks a visual code for me. This does look like a Harry Potter movie in a lot of ways. Huh. Interesting. I've always known to steer clear of the works of... Oh, yeah. Of, of J.K. Rowling, so I've never seen a Harry Potter movie. But that's, a, that's an interesting take. I think Chocolat and 12 Monkeys are the other films of his that I've seen. Oh, and he did Batman. He did the original Tim Burton Batman. That is a, a wildly stylish movie compared to this. What was your take on the CGI? Uh, like, where are we in 2004? Where are we on the CGI uh, evolution spectrum? And how well does it does it acquit itself here? Your big use cases in this are making a huge, you know, crowd of soldiers, which is, is fine and holds up just as well as it needs to. And then, you know... Some of those wide shots of, of you know, the city of Troy or camera zooms out from ship on the ocean to reveal the thousand other ships that it's sailing alongside. And I think those are, are less great, but they're, you know, they don't bump you out of the film, really. I will say that, like, long sweeping shots of 100,000 Greek troops isn't as impressive to me as a shot of a tent on top of a boat, <laughs> which is what Agamemnon was working with, uh, beachside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. But that wasn't CGI. <laughs> I want to know everything about how you set a tent on top of a boat that way. You just pull your bireme up on the uh, up on the sand, Adam, and you pitch a tent on it. That was the Westphalia version of yeah, the, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the pop top. The Greek ship. Yeah. <laughs> what uh what, they they spent 180 million dollars making this movie and they actually built giant sets right how some of the sets looked like 
big dumb giant Hollywood sets in the 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 kind of main street of Troy with its giant temples on either side. I didn't feel like that was fooling anybody, but how, what's the biggest set they built on this film? Were the walls of Troy actual? The wall was real. The main wall. Yeah. They built that in Mexico. There, it's, it's weird. Like some of this stuff they shot in Malta and some they shot in Mexico. And I feel like if you're in Malta, you might as well just do it all in Malta, right? Right. Like why fly cast and crew all the way to the other side of the planet to shoot some of the, some of it in Cabo. Maybe they subscribe to that Adam Sandler sensibility <laughs> of like make a movie with your friends in a fun place. Yeah. The place in Malta that they shot was Fort Ricasoli. Uh-huh. And they uh, they also shot parts of Gladiator there. They 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 shot it for Rome. Nice. And a movie called Agora starring Rachel Vice, which I don't know anything about. Do we have to watch this Rachel Vice movie? Rachel oh, Weiss yeah. is Hy- Hypatia? I'm in. Sure. I wonder if there's any war shit. I mean, if it's set in 4th century Roman Egypt, it's got to, right? Put it on the list! <laughs> I'm astonished at how many war movies we keep discovering. Some of them, I thought that we would get to a place where the only new war movies we found were like straight-to-video, like Nazi apologia movies, but... We keep discovering both classic movies from the 50s and 60s. This is a bottomless well. With huge, yeah. with big name stars where it's like, how did we not hear about this movie before? It's got fucking Clark Gable in it. And then there are also all these movies like like contemporary movies that are like big budget war movies. How do we, how do we not already have them on our over 200 movie list? I don't know. I add a couple every week and and a lot of it is like people suggesting them online, but also like I'll be looking at the IMDb listing and it'll be like, this movie is like these three other movies. And I'll, I'll look at them and I'll be like, two of these aren't on the list. How is that possible? Do you think we were deprived of 12 days of games after Hector's death? <laughs> like it, when you're speaking of compression of time, that was a moment of time compression that uh, they gave me a little bit of vertigo. What were those games like? And this this is a movie that doesn't give us subtitles, so like the sort of subtitles that tell us what time it is or where we are in the world. I don't think it it's it's that kind of film. But we definitely get a twelve days later subtitle after Hector's death. Yeah, give me the the new director's cut. They really put that uh, that Trojan horse up in record time, right? Yeah. I liked that it was all burnt wood. That made it look real badass. The horse looked great. Great job with that horse. But I think I think you gotta burn that horse, guys. I love the debate about that. That that is such fun, like, oh yeah, like, should we light this thing on fire? <laughs> the guys inside are like, Don't, please don't. <laughs> the part that, that made the strongest case for it was that it may carry disease. Like like why wasn't anyone arguing for that aspect of burning the horse instead of like, well, we can't burn a gift, that's bad luck or whatever. Like, they didn't have the germ theory of disease when this was set. I feel bad for that dog. Yeah, he was licking he was licking the fake disease off, but nobody saw it. But in the Iliad itself, plague plays a role in the story. It's just that it's another example of a god put like 
putting a plague on the Greeks until they do something that he likes. I forget what it is, but you know, until the, (laughs) until the Greeks can juggle four balls at a time, they get Apollo puts a plague on them. I think it's four golden apples, four four golden apples, uh, and then lifts the plague. And so I think from there, from the Greek standpoint, a plague was just, um, like a God having a, like a brat attack. One thing that, uh, this movie changes pretty dramatically from the Iliad is this is a, a decade long war that is depicted as lasting a few weeks. And, uh, that feels like a very, 2004 idea like oh yeah wars we're, we we do them and we're in and out and we wrap them up quick like when the west goes to on a war of adventure with the east we uh we don't stick around oh it's a you know the iliad also uh is only about a very small part of the trojan war but this movie makes it seem like it's it's about the entire yeah, span right. of the trojan war and they shock and awe, they find Troy's weapons of mass destruction, they depose Prius and the and they head home. Priam. Not Prius. Prius is a hybrid electric vehicle oh, that Priam. came out. Priam, that's right. <laughs> I think uh, I think I think the Prius was the new car in the same year that this movie came out though, so <laughs> you could be forgiven for making that mistake. <laughs> It's review time on Friendly Fire, and uh, when we review a film, famously, we use the custom rating system of my design. And I kind of approached Troy with that horrified, resting oh shit face that Peter O'Toole has throughout the film. Its reputation was far worse for me than its reality. John, I blame you for that. Oh. I think you've been you've been ringing the the Troy Bell of Hate for for years. Yeah, I have. I feel like you've referred to Troy on Friendly Fire before as as a film that represents the very worst probably of what we could do. I'm glad it wasn't that. I think if there's some sort of message that this film is trying to present, it's the importance of having your name remembered. This is something that Achilles talks about all the time. It's It's basically all of his dialogue is about being remembered. And it is his justification for doing all of the things that he does. For those on his side of the conflict, I think that is a great thing. Uh, He's like an instrument to be unleashed in an awe-inspiring way. Everyone is in awe of him. And for those who fight against him... He's kind of a weapon of mass destruction in an interesting way, in a figurative way that may not have been intentional, but something that I definitely picked up on. And like that, one way for an actor to become famous and successful is to be good looking. And Brad Pitt is unquestionably that. Uh, Another way for an actor to become famous and successful is by doing a nude scene. And in Troy, Brad Pitt is nude a half a dozen times. There was a lot of thought given to how to light a butt in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) To get the shadows just so. To make it round, but not fat. Smooth, but not fake looking. Mm. Even if a person hates this movie, the thing about it is, It's Brad Pitt's butt, the movie. 
But to what extent is the movie Troy famous and successful with the assembled hosts of Friendly Fire? We'll soon decide using a scale of one to five butts. <laughs> As I said, I was prepared for something bad. And I think when I go into a movie thinking it's going to be bad, I think that gives a lot of room to be pleasantly surprised by a movie. And I was by this. I thought the the casting was inspired. The casting was weird to me, though, because Eric Bana is the star of this movie. He's the good guy. He's the man we're rooting for. He has charisma. He has the love of people around him. Brad Pitt's Achilles has none of those things. I thought it was interesting that Brad Pitt still remained the top bill for this one. I thought uh, the imagery was impressive and shocking. Like, especially at the end, we've seen a lot of war movies together that that have made us shudder in what they have shown us uh, in terms of their brutality and violence. And I thought that I couldn't be moved by a film after many of those. But when babies and moms are pulled out of burning buildings and then those babies are thrown back into those burning buildings, that, uh, that really shocked me. That really got my attention in a way I wasn't expecting. Troy made me think a lot about Gladiator and how Russell Crowe was willing to walk off the set if his dialogue didn't work, and it made me wonder to what extent this film would have been better if all of this great talent brought their leverage to bear and put an effort into maybe writing a little more of this film on set in a way that would have would have satisfied these great actors a little more, because... I think while there's a lot of talent here, I don't think they're given too much to do as much as I would have hoped. Finally, I think Troy is a better movie to you if you watch it thinking that Achilles wants to die but can't. Like if he has become the story about the gods that he tells Briseis, I think that makes him a more interesting character than he is if you don't interpret that story that way. Mm. All I know is, by the end of the film, I was glad to have lived through the experience. Four butts. Yeah, my my memory of this movie was worse than it was, and I think that that must be that the director's cut really is a unqualified improvement on the original. And I would recommend checking out the director's cut to somebody that has either seen this film and didn't like it or hasn't seen it at all, I would say, check the director's cut out. You might be pleasantly surprised. It's it's a two-nighter. We watched it over dinner for, for two nights in a row. And uh, I think that was a good way to, to take it down. And I agree with you. Like The brutality of the sack of Troy is something that a weaker film like the theatrical version would peanut butter over like i think that this film you know it gives you these these grand characters that feel larger than life almost godly you know forcing out these very grandiloquent speeches and then it reminds you like these are primitive humans <laughs> like they are fucking monsters and they do monstrous shit to each other and I thought that that was really interesting contrast. And while 
I do agree with John's points that like the like everybody starts pretty and stays pretty throughout this movie, and that's a, like a knock against it. Overall, I think it's uh, really worth watching for the for the shock of what the sack of Troy winds up being like. And uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and uh, come in at four butts, eight cheeks. Ooh, boy, two four butt ratings. Yeah. Well, I I've got to sort of mea culpa again about how much I didn't like this movie at the time and it's kind of a good it's a good lesson to re-watch a movie that you really hated i don't think i need to re-watch paulie shores in the army now again but like when i gave paulie shores in the army now a zero it wasn't a hate zero it was just a zero of resignation it was a it was just a shrug zero it was like a I don't need to get out of bed to review this. I mean, I'm going to sit here for the duration of this show, but I got nothing, nothing here. Whereas some of my ratings that are even that, you know, I don't give very many zeros. Some of my ratings that are two and a half are meant to be more, more of a chastisement than even a zero, a two and a half, but two, but this movie did not warrant that kind of, hate and i feel like i lived 15 years of my life partly under a cloud of of troy hatred and if i could go back if i had a time machine i wouldn't go back and kill hitler i would go back and reevaluate the theatrical cut of troy i don't think that the director's cut aspect of it i don't think that there's enough new material in it that it completely redeems it um I think that I probably just, you know, didn't, I, you know, I didn't see it. I had a certain bias against it. I didn't see it in the right way. It's not like the director's cut removed an intrusive voiceover. I know that there's a whole school of thought in reviewing films where you're not, there are people that are offended by the idea of reviewing a movie based on what it could have been rather than just reviewing the movie based on what it is. I do not subscribe to that way of thinking it is not it is not the only way to think about reviewing movies it is not my way of thinking i like to imagine how this movie could have been better and i think some of my disappointment uh at the time was that this is the freaking iliad it had better be great there's a reason this story has survived for over three thousand years and so don't just make a summer blockbuster out of it you've been handed one of the great works of of western sieve and i feel like with this budget and this cast and really starting from this script as adam says if the people invested if the people making this movie were invested in it and any of them had a sense of like we've been handed an opportunity to retell this story that's been retold by human beings since the dawn of writing. And here's our chance to enshrine it on the screen, to make it now real for the next thousand years. And they just kind of fucking lazed their way through it, frankly. Uh, so I feel like that just, I, 
I got to crank it back up because it's a pretty fun war movie and pretty good time. But then I got to crank it down because what the fuck? So it's a straight three for me. Yeah, I I feel like three butts. And I mean, three Brad Pitt butts. That's a fucking pretty good stuff, right? Worth the three hours, I think. So, yeah, there it is. Three butts. Wow. Uh, John, who is your guy, though? My guy is, uh, I haven't done this in a while, uh, but my guy is not a guy. It's not an inanimate object either because it's an object that is extreme, extremely animate, and that is the leather curtain to Brad Pitt's tent. <laughs> the leather curtain to Brad Pitt's tent has more lines in this movie than about three quarters of the actors, three quarters of the featured actors. It's like he lives in a walk-in freezer. Because every time, that's <laughs> every time someone goes in and out of that tent, this film makes sure that we get the foley of leather straps being very satisfying, slapped aside and then falling back into place. This like thwap, 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 thwap. And it's like, it's such a presence in this movie. And that curtain just, after a while, it just felt like a, it felt like a kind of a firm spank on a bare bottom. (laughs) And I just want, I, I looked forward to it. I was like, give me more of that curtain. And even when people were walking by outside and someone came out of Brad Pitt's tent, that sound effect was there. Thwap it a thwap. You know, I want to do something here in honor of your guy, John, just for the uh, for the video version of this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, Drake meme, get out of here with the beaded, <laughs> the beaded doorway. Get over here with that leather doorway. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I like. Oh, that leather doorway. Drake meme, that leather doorway. Adam, did you have a guy? Yeah, I mean... My guy is kind of a missed opportunity, though. I think Patroclus is set up as as Paris-like in a lot of ways. Like he's the he's the the puppy yapping at Brad Pitt's ankles. He wants to fight. He's also the guy that I think crucially, like he understands the code of things. He he joins up. With the Myrmidons, he's there to fight. He thought he was there to do a thing that that then the rules change once he gets there. And so he, he puts on Achilles' armor and he goes out and he gets himself killed. Like, Achilles isn't the only one with a code in this movie. And Patroclus' code was was interesting to me. He... He dies of a case of mistaken identity, which isn't a great look for him. His death is also the vehicle for Achilles' revenge. But I kind of dug his character, and I understood him in a way that that maybe I didn't understand many other characters' motivations. Also, a note about Patroclus, he was supposed to be Achilles' lover. And in, uh, in 04, you're just not going to get that. My guy is Odysseus. I just, uh, I liked him every time he was on screen. I feel like this movie really knew what a resource he was in terms of like feeling good and used <laughs> used him sparingly. Uh, but I I loved him. He seemed like, like if you're, 
if you're going to get handed a an ahistorical pike and slap a helmet on and walk into battle, you want to be with the with the Ithaca crew. Yeah. Hey, for real, was he the only funny character in the film? Yeah. Like he was doing bits when he was called into service. I feel like he was he was it. Yeah. For that. I mean, yeah. when you're a king, you can get away with a lot of shit that you can't get away with if you're just a plebe. Yeah. Heavy lie the crown, but also heavy lie the bits. Word. When one comes at the king, one best not miss. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, speaking of uh, not missing, what are we going to hit with that 120-sided die? Ooh la la. Well, let's see here. Maybe you should uh, make a moat of fire and then roll it through that fire mode <laughs> i fell into a burning mode of fire i got a different mug today so it's gonna have a different foley sound let's see what the 120 sided die has to offer Ventequatro! Ventequatro! That's 24. 24 is a 1956 Robert Aldrich directed film set in Germany in World War II. It's called Attack! <laughs> what? Really? Yeah. It's uh, starring Jack Palance and Lee Marvin. Whoa! Gentlemen. Fuck yeah. Did I hear an exclamation point there? You did hear an exclamation point. Okay, good. Gritty and cynical combat drama. In the last days of World War II, the actions of a cowardly and inept captain leads to friction between him and his lieutenant. Eventually, tragedy. Ooh. Friction. Tragedy. Attack! (laughs) That'll be next week on Friendly Fire. In the meantime, for Adam Pranica and John Roderick, I've been Ben Harrison. To Victor Go, spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr. It's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Looking to cozy up with a cup of cocoa and more Friendly Fire? Check out an episode from our back catalog. Last year around this time, your hosts covered... Torah, 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 a 1970 retelling of the events leading up to the attack of Pearl Harbor. Feel like supporting the show? Well, you can do that by heading to MaximumFun.org join. And for as little as $5 a month, you'll gain access to our bonus pork chop feed and all of the bonus content provided by Maximum Fun. Don't forget, you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.